Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. So the title for today is Healing the Racial Wound, Joshua 22, 1-20. And if you are listening, I'm going to say this for our podcast, YouTube people. If you're listening, there, there should be some pictures and, and a video attached to the YouTube and podcast because I'm going to be showing a few here as we talk. Um, what did I do on my two-week vacation sabbatical? I know a lot of you are wondering, what did I do? Um, the story starts 10 years ago. I was burning brush at Nancy's house and we were burning lots of brush and... We had a lot of fun with that until the fire marshal showed up, but that's a whole other story. But uh, I saw a couple gravestones sticking out of the ground up on her place, and I said, what is this? And she said, there used to be a church on her property, Mount Moriah African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church. And um, she said, that's a graveyard that started in the early 1800s and went up to sometime early 1900s, and it was actually part of the Underground Railroad. I'm like, whoa, well, that got my attention. And so I said, someday I want to come back here and dig and find out what's really back here. And I finally started that in May. A couple months ago, I started digging, as you'll see in a few minutes. And then when I did the sabbatical, we were at the beach a lot of the time. But when we were at the beach, I was there early in the morning, uh, you know, 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock, about every morning, very, very early, uh, digging, which you'll see. Um, It was really a sacred time. It was a great sabbatical. It was really a sacred time because... These forgotten saints, uh, really, they're forgotten. They're the, you'll see the stones were just buried and knocked down, and they threw a lot of garbage on top of it. Nancy did an amazing job cleaning that place up. They uh, forgotten saints, but each of these graves, as I dug, I knew that was a, a special life. Um, this was a church graveyard, and it was uh, many, many of them were Christians. I could almost feel the, the spiritual power there. I did actually. I was actually digging in one hole, and I got an electrical shock. Uh, it was a pretty good shock. It felt like I grabbed an electric fence, like a cow fence, you know? And I went to Nancy and said, Nancy, is there electric up there? I'm digging an electric. i got to be careful. She goes, no, there's no electrical wires. I'm like, ooh. Because I, I grabbed the stone and literally got an electrical shock, and I pulled my arm out, and it was still throbbing. I don't know if you've ever grabbed a cow fence, and it was still going. I'm like, that was, what did I grab? And then I'm like, hmm. Then I'm like, okay, ghosts, you know? But then I'm like, wait, no, this is a church graveyard. And th- this, this was probably uh, a bones of the prophet, some prophet up there. Uh, you know, when they threw the bones in the Old Testament and on the prophet's grave, and he, the guy came back alive. I go, you know, the Old Testament. I, I must have touched some prophet's, you know, near some prophet's bones. You know, I got this, this jolt. Crazy, huh? And I'll see if I have more unction preaching. Then you'll know why. I love history, too. I also love history, and there's many former slaves that were buried in this uh, grave plot. Um, some Civil War veterans from the Colored Infantry will show a few stones up there, and I was like, they should be remembered. And it was very, very touching history. Jo- Pastor Joe, remember him from Sober United Methodist? He actually wrote a paper, and we've been in contact as we've been talking about this. He sent me the paper. Of, uh, I can email it to you if you want a copy. Just let me know. But it's about 40, 50 pages of the history of, of this, really, this graveyard. It was a lot, big part of this history that he wrote. Very, very touching to uh, read about that. And these people went through so much. A lot of these people that are buried in this graveyard went through so much. There were slave catchers right here 
Wait till you read the story. Slave catchers right here catching people, taking them back, beating them up. It was crazy. The, the, the slave catchers and, and the racism that they faced, and, and they persevered through it. And their faith in Christ, as you read this article that he wrote, their faith in Christ was such a big part of their story. And each stone, for me, was a reminder of that. And also there's my personal connection. My personal history has a connection with, with this whole movement. My great, great, great something grandfather lived on the same farm I lived on. Lived on the same farm, and he was a farmer there. And he was out working one day, and one of the ox, you know, they had those long horns. One of the ox swung the head to get a fly and put his eye out, popped his eye out. And, uh, but when they did the draft for the Civil War, he had to go. One eye or two eyes, you have to go. He was drafted. He had to go fight in the war. So in spite of having one eye, he marched off the same farm I grew up in to go off and free the slaves. And he was captured in the Battle of the Wilderness. Battle of the Wilderness, and then he died in Andersonville Prison. That's where he's buried. So I'm going to show you some pictures. I think you're going to... I brought some of them, not all of them, but a few of the pictures. Uh, we'll just start at the beginning. You can see... Oh, could I... Yeah, you want to just dim it? Yeah, thank you, Brad. Mikey and I got started. There's only, this is all that was showing. Just a couple stones were showing, and, and Mikey and I got started. And then, uh, keep, just keep going, Rebecca, give it a few seconds. And then we started digging and we found, started finding rows. And once you found a row, you, could, you knew where to dig. And this is our very first row. There it is. Okay, you can see them pulling up the gravestones. Only the little nub was showing and I pulled the whole thing up and then pieced it together like a puzzle. It's crazy how that, how that all worked. That's how it started out. Just a little piece sticking up. That's how it started out. A little piece sticking up. Um, it's a dirty work. It's a dirty job. You know, I hosed off outside a lot. A lot of different stones. Some were not easy to get out of the root systems. <laughs> As you can see. That's how they start. I just see a little nub sticking up. Dirty job. <laughs> Nancy took that picture for me. And a lot of them are very close together. And they've, they've, uh, they've, a lot of them must have been buried on top of each other. Families. all Because there weren't a lot of graveyards that... Uh, black people could be buried in. So they probably had to, to really bury the families in close together. In fact, one, you could see all the different work. One time I was digging and I broke through. I only went down about two feet and I broke into a space. And so I knew they were buried on top of each other and I, I quick buried, filled it in again before I got an electric shock, right? So, uh, so you can just see what, what happened here. Uh, some are Civil War veterans. Um, they have the good stones, Civil War vets. Show a few more pictures here. The Civil War vets had good stones. They, they actually went in probably, I'm guessing, early 1900s and put in official stones for them. And that's how they start. You just see a little piece in the ground, and I just start digging, and I pull it up. Oh, here's, oh, here's a Civil, uh, Civil War vet that Joe was here last Monday, and he, he actually found this one. Joe was out looking at it with Nancy and Brenda and I, and he found this. There's Joe. There's the stone, and there's the famous trio. Brenda took the picture. Thank you, Brenda. And there's a several Civil War stones like that that you can actually read and stuff. So that's, that's the, the history. Oh, and let's just show a little video. I did a little short video. I'm up to, about, I'm up to actually about 350 stones now. It's a little blurry. Sorry about that. Not coming out as well. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> you see how far it goes? I'm guessing there's about 700 total stones I could probably get. 
I'll probably only be able to recover about 500 from what I'm seeing. Sorry, the video didn't transfer to the computer very well here, but you get the idea. It just goes and goes and goes. Lots of, lots of stones. So, okay. All right, well, thank you. Uh, uh, Brad, you can bump it up. Thanks. Now, I'm going to connect some dots later in Joshua 22, where we're going to see another interesting story of another pile of rocks, another pile of rocks. Uh, let, me, uh, let me pray first. Father, we thank you for worship today. We thank you for the way you're moving in lives and touching lives and, and your mercy and grace is moving in a powerful way. But we pray for that same mercy and grace to touch us now as we go into your word here in Joshua 22. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Joshua 22. We'll start with the first nine verses here. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God has given you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, of the tribe Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver and gold, bronze and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide it with your brothers, the plunder from your enemies. So the Reubenites... The Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh and Canaan and returned to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. So we see that two and a half tribes, there's 12 tribes in total, they've all been fighting for the promised land, but two and a half tribes finally returned home to east of the Jordan. The promised land is west, but they went back to their property east of the Jordan River because in Numbers 32 we find it as they were coming into the promised land as they were getting ready to come in across the Jordan they saw that the land was ideal for flocks and herds and that's what these two and a half tribes were known for their flocks and herds of livestock and so they said this is perfect why can't we stay here? And, and so they, they talked to Moses, and there was a little misunderstanding at first, but they petitioned Moses, and he finally saw that it was right. He talked to God about it, and they grant, he granted them permission to claim that land for their inheritance before crossing the Jordan, to claim that land. But he said, the only way you can do this, God says, the only way you can do this is if you cross the Jordan with your brothers, follow Joshua across, fight for the promised land, Help them win, and then you can return back to your inheritance after that battle is all over, which they were faithful in doing. They were very faithful. They helped all these years. They've been battling, and now they're getting back to live. I'm sure they visited many times, their families, but they get to go back to live in their inheritance. They're getting their inheritance too. Now, these two and a half tribes are a type. They're a picture of someone. A lot of times people ask me, what about the Old Testament saints? What about the people in the Old Testament who 
were there and died before Jesus came, the ones who were under the law or before Jesus came. What about people before Jesus? What about them? This is the scripture's answer to what happened before Jesus came. Because remember, it's all a picture. Joshua is a picture of Jesus. The Jordan is a picture of his death and resurrection. It's all a spiritual picture. These physical battles are a spiritual picture, and it's all that. And this is, this is showing us what happens to the Old Testament saints. They were promised an inheritance from Moses, right? From Moses before Joshua led the way through the river. These two and a half tribes before Joshua led through the river, that's a picture of what happened with the Old Testament saints. They were promised under, by Moses an inheritance before Jesus came and led the way through the Jordan, before he died, before he resurrected from the dead, which is all a picture of. They are a, a picture of that. They're a, they're a picture of those under the law before Jesus came. These two and a half tribes are a picture of those under the law before Jesus came. These Old Testament... But they notice something. They were told they were going to have to follow Joshua, Right? They're going to still have to follow Joshua, which they promised to do. The Old Testament saints, the Old Testament saints were looking forward to the coming Messiah. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah, which we know was the ultimate Joshua, Jesus. And they sacrificed a lamb. They sacrificed a lamb to cover their sins, and they put their faith in that sacrifice, and that represented their faith in God and in His sacrifice, the coming Messiah. They didn't see it all as clearly as we see it now, but they knew they were putting their faith in God in that sacrifice, and that lamb was looking forward to the Messiah who would be sacrificed, right? But these tribes had to wait until after Joshua's victory to get their full inheritance, they had to wait till Joshua had the full victory. They had the full victory in the land, crossed the Jordan, conquered, conquered. They had to wait to get their full inheritance. And the same goes for the Old Testament saints. They were saved by not following the law. They were saved by faith. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. It's always been faith. The law was given for a specific purpose to show our need of repentance, to show our need of a Savior. That's why the law was given. They were never saved by that, but, but they were saved by faith. Faith in God and in the Lamb that they had sacrificed because it represented Jesus Christ. Their sins were placed on that Lamb, just like all of our sins were ultimately were going to be placed on, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, on Jesus Christ himself. But they had to wait... These people had to wait to get their full inheritance. And the Old Testament saints, even though they put their faith in God and that lamb, Jesus, even though they were doing that, they had to wait until the lamb was actually sacrificed. Until Jesus was actually sacrificed. Until our Joshua, Jesus, went through the Jordan, had victory over the grave. They had to wait for that to happen before they could get their full inheritance. Before they could get to heaven. Old Testament saints did not just go to heaven to be with God. They couldn't because there was sin. And even if one tiny sin, if we carried into God's sight, God could not have us in his presence. It had to be paid for. It had to be atoned for. For all have sinned and fall short of God's righteousness. He cannot have sin or a sinner in his presence. So these Old Testament saints put their 
faith in God and, and the Lamb, but they couldn't get to heaven. Where did they go? Luke 16. Lazarus and the rich man. Abraham's bosom. At one time, before Christ died and resurrected, there was a place called Hades. And it had two parts to it. And Jesus taught this in Luke 16. Hades had two parts. It had a fiery hell part, where those who did not have faith in God went. And the other side it had was called Abraham's bosom, where anybody who had faith in God, saved by their faith, Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness, saved by that faith, that's where they went and waited in this temporary heaven, in a sense. There was a great gulf, Jesus said, fixed between, and they could actually see across and see what their faith had saved them from. That doesn't happen anymore, but that was the case at this time. So Hades had two parts, because sin was not atoned for yet. The cross had not happened. They could not go into heaven. But then Jesus came and died on the cross in our place for our sin. He paid for our sin. And because of that, because he paid for our sin, now they could go into God's presence. And that's why Jesus, after he died, he went down into hell. Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended into hell. That does not mean, there's so much confusion in this, that confusion, that does not mean Jesus went down to hell for three days and got pinched by demons because he had to experience that. That is, that is superstition. That's not biblical. He went down into hell, Hades, the good side of Hades. Hades was two parts, Abraham's bosom and fire. And he went down into Abraham's bosom. And he took those believers from Abraham's bosom up to heaven with him. Why could he do that? Because sin was atoned for. Sin was paid for. They were now under the blood, of, not of a lamb, but of the blood of the lamb Jesus Christ. They could now go into God's presence. They can enter it because of Jesus Christ's victory. Just as Joshua's victory gave them their inheritance, they could go in because of Jesus Christ's victory. And this is all a picture. These two and a half tribes are a picture of the Old Testament saints and, and, and why they had to wait to get their inheritance, their full inheritance. So that's the type here. But now we come to the part of the story that gets rocky. <laughs> uh, Joshua twenty-two ten to 20 is the rocky part. Look at verse 10 here. When they came to... Gililoth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and a half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gililoth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build your yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now was not the sin of pure enough for us up to this very day we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin even though a plague fell on the community of the lord and are you now turning away from the lord if you rebel against the lord today tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of israel 
If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel, he was not the only one who died for his sins. So, the other nine and a half tribes thought that the two and a half tribes were setting up a competing altar, which would have been apostasy. Because God gave very specific commands, as you know, throughout the, the, the Pentateuch, he gave very specific orders for worship. There was to be one altar, which was at the tabernacle at this time, and then in time it would move to the temple as God commanded the temple to be built. That was one altar was allowed, and, and the lamb had to be sacrificed on that altar by the chosen high priest. That was the only way. There was only one way to approach the one true God. One way. One altar. One high priest. One lamb on that, on that altar. One way. There was only one way. It had to be his altar, his chosen lamb, his chosen high priest. That was the only way, just like today. It's not, no, it's not any different. There's a reason why this is here, why God gave that command. There is one way to approach God. There's one altar. We know what that altar now has been. It's been fulfilled by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the altar. The cross where the ultimate Lamb of God was sacrificed once for all. It's not every week. It's once for all. Once for all on that altar. And, and Jesus Christ is the lamb, and not only that, he is the high priest. He's the high priest and the lamb, the ultimate high priest. And he is the only way to God. The only way. He even said it, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles preached the same message in Acts 4.12. They said, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under, he- under, heaven, wait, no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. One way, one name. The only way to have our sins paid for. The only way to be saved. The only way to come to the one true God. That's it. That's the only way. Now, next week we're going to see how they resolve this crisis. But today I want to focus on the crisis. Don't miss next, miss next week because we're going to see how, how they resolve this. There, there was a, thankfully a very good resolution which will teach us a lot about how to resolve our own crises, our own co- conflicts, pers- uh, relationship conflicts. But I want to focus on the crisis today to finish up here. They send who to, to help deal with this? Phineas. Do you remember Phineas. We actually studied him a while back. Uh, Phineas knew how serious the effects of disobedience could be. This guy knew firsthand how serious disobedience could be. In fact, he says in uh, verses 16 and 17 here, he says, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the Lord, the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of pure... Enough for us. 
Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community before the Lord. He refers to the sin of Peor, which we talked about. I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about this. Uh, we talked about this in Numbers 25. And what happened is, is remember, Balaam wanted, if you can't beat him, join him. He was trying to help the, the Midianites defeat the Israelites, and they couldn't fight him, so he couldn't curse them. So he says the only thing we could do is tempt them to sin, to, to disobey God. And so they sent all the beautiful Midianite women in bikinis over, and they did all these Val light commercials, and and they, uh, you know, they they did all this, and they they got they got the men to engage in sexual immorality with the Midianite women, and then they not only did that, they worshipped the idols. They turned to the sexual sin, and right after that, it was idolatry. And listen, in the Old Testament, if you study it, almost every worship of idolatry included sexual sin. It was all closely tied together. It wasn't just praying to another God. It was always sexual immorality. And so that's what they, they did. And, and so God sends a plague. It breaks out among the community, among the people. Everybody's suffering from a terrible plague. And so God gave a very specific orders. He commanded, he said, the only way this plague is going to stop is you have to go through and kill all the men who have indulged in this sexual immorality. You have to kill them. That's how serious sexual sin is to God. Scary, huh? And so... So while, while, right after he gave this command, here's Moses with the elders. They're weeping. They're weeping together over the sin and the plague and what they're going to have to do. And right in front of them walks an Israelite man with his Midianite girlfriend. She wasn't a Christian. She wasn't an Israelite. She didn't follow one true God. He walks right in front of them, commanded not to, to be with her. And he, and he arrogantly walked right in front of Moses and these leaders. And he walked into his, took her into the tent to go have sex with her. And Phineas, the son of the high priest, took a, sword, took a spear, fouled them in and speared them. Put it right through both bodies and nailed them into the ground, killed them. And that began the stopping of the plague. Phineas saw how bad the plague was, how it was destroying, destroying people. But he also had holy zeal for God's glory. And that's the guy they sent (laughs) to deal with this problem. This is who they sent, that Phineas. That Phineas. The same Phineas now shows up to confront this sin. He knows how serious it is. And look what he says. He says, to this very day, we still have not been fully cleansed from this sin. It's still following them, the effect of that sin. And you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been involved in sin, you know the effect follows us many times throughout our life. Even though we're forgiven, even though it's under the blood of Christ, a lot of times we still have to deal with the consequences. And he said that we have still following us. Think about what, what they what were still going through this very day, still not fully cleansed from that sin. And then he connects another dot. He connects another dot in verses 18 to 20. Not just that it's still with us and we're still not fully cleansed from the sin, but he says in verse 18, he talks about corporate sin. He connects a further dot. He says, and are you now turning from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land with the Lord's tabernacle and our stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourself other than the altar of the Lord, our God. When Achan's son of Zerah acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. 
He says, not only are we not fully cleansed from it, but he connects it to corporate sin. If sin is allowed, it affects everybody. It affects the entire family. It affects an entire church. It, infects, it affects and infects an entire country. It's called corporate sin. And he uses Achan's sin as an example. Remember Achan when we were back a couple years ago in Joshua 6 and 7? Remember that? Uh, sorry. Uh, go back and listen. But anyway, Achan's sin. Achan, they were going to take Jericho and God knocks the walls down. He says, don't touch anything. It's all devoted to me. It all has to be given to me. This first city, I'm knocking the walls down myself. It's devoted holy, but Achan went and hid treasure, and as a result, they were defeated in battle, When they went to fight Ai, they were defeated, people died, it caused this tremendous disunity, the people all panicked, it was a horrible device, a horrible time, and it all was because of Achan's sin, and it wasn't, the entire nation was judged by defeat until they purged Achan and his sin from among them. It had to be purged. I'm going to connect some dots now. In the graveyard, I've been digging the last couple weeks, there's a lot of escaped slaves buried there. And it was actually part of the Underground Railroad. They had to sneak the escaped slaves through home to home, and a lot of you know that story, and they just had to sneak them from home to home. The USA at this time was guilty of a great evil, slavery. And not just one part of the country, the entire country was guilty of this great evil. North and South was equally guilty of this great sin, this great evil. In fact, the abolitionists, who everybody loves to like celebrate today, they were a tiny minority, the abolitionists. They were unpopular in the North and the South. Read it sometime. It's crazy. It's like Operation Rescue now, trying to save aborted babies. You know, there's this fringe, crazy group. Nobody, even a lot of Christians didn't want anything to do with them. The abolitionists. Although almost 99.9% of them were Christians, they saw, they understood what God wanted, freedom for everyone there. And so both are equally guilty of this great sin. And Abraham Lincoln pointed this out, and he pointed out why the Civil War came. He pointed out, he, he connected the dots that God sent division, first of all, division, And then he sent the civil war to punish and purge this great evil. That's why it happened. I'm going to read something. Abraham Lincoln, some of his second inaugural address, March 4th, 1865. One month after this, General Lee surrendered his army, which was really almost the end of the war at that point. And then five days later, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. After that, this is just a month till the war is really effectively ending and a month till Abraham Lincoln is killed. The London Spectator said of this event, he said it, they said it was a sacred, almost prophetic character. Journalist Noah Brooks said when he was writing about this, he said, as Lincoln advanced from his seat, a roar of applause shook the air. Just at that moment, the sun, which had been obscured all day, burst forth in its unclouded splendor and flooded the spectacle with glory and light. Dark clouds and foosh, the light comes out. He said the audience received the speech in profound silence. Looking down into the faces of the people, 
illuminated by the bright rays of the sun, one could see the moist eyes and even tearful faces. Sacred event. I'm just going to read you a few excerpts from this speech. Abraham Lincoln. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. The Almighty... The Almighty has his own purposes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must need come but which he now wills to remove and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war. As the woe due to those by whom the offense came Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until the, all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We don't read that in school anymore, do we? Slavery was a corporate sin. And God judged the whole country for it, just like he judged Achan's sin. We're seeing the same thing with abortion today. The new ultimate evil that our country is practicing. We're seeing the same thing. God is judging the U.S. What are we facing as a country? Division. More and more people are saying, wow, it's just like before the Civil War. It's just the same division. What will come next? If we don't repent and if we don't turn back and repent of this evil, I'm going to tell you what's going to come next. Something just like a Civil War. Some kind of a judgment that there will be no missing it. No missing it. I hope we'll wake up in time. Slavery is gone. Slavery is gone in the U.S. at least, not worldwide. It's still active in the world, although you don't read it in our, most of our media outlets today. It's very active in Muslim countries, practiced openly and freely, mostly taking Christians captive as sex slaves. Why isn't the media speaking up for the Christian sex slaves? taking slaves and and killing and murdering and plundering. It's widely practiced all over the world. Google it. Well, who knows what Google will have. Search for it. But slavery is gone. But to this very day, 
It's gone in the United States, but to this very day, we have not been fully cleansed. Just like P.R., the sin of P.R., we have not been fully cleansed. First of all, when the slaves were freed, they were treated horribly. Horribly. There was the KKK in the South and in the North. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but the KKK was very active in the North, too. Uh, the graveyard history that I could send to you, uh, Pastor Joe shares about the race riots in Lambertville. Unbelievable attacks on, on uh, black people. They call this place where Nancy lives now, they call it Darkie Town. That's not a very nice thing to say, right? And, uh, and they just mistreated these people. And churches were segregated at first. The Methodist churches were on the cutting edge. You know, the Methodist revival. All these people were getting saved. Whites and blacks were worshiping together. But as, as the Methodist church became established, they wanted to fit in. And they started segregating. started making the blacks feel uncomfortable. And that's why they started the AME denomination. You can read it all in, jo- in Joe's history. And here we are 150 years later. And racism is still haunting us. Still haunting us. Understand something. I hate all racism. I hate it all. I hate white racism, which gets most of the press and is well documented. That's really the one that's mostly talked about. Uh, and it's not hard to, to, to find it. Uh, I know when we, Kim and I, went when we first were in ministry, we went down to Mississippi for a mission trip. We were working with a black church, helping them. And we were shocked at what they were still facing, things that you can't even imagine. You know, they, they were just treated very poorly there in Mississippi still. And uh, I'll just tell you a funny story. We, were at the, we went to have Ryan a month early. He was born in Mississippi on this mission trip. That's a whole other story. But I remember we went in the hospital. We just had to take what they gave us because it was middle of the night. And we just went in and we didn't have a doctor. They said, well, we found the doctor. The doctor on duty is this doctor. And I can't remember his name now. But, but, but they said, he's really a good doctor, but he's black. Okay. <laughs> what? I didn't know what they were telling me. But the next nurse came in about an hour later. Oh, you're going to have doctor... You're going to have doctor, whoever he was. But he's a really good doctor, but he's black. Yeah, and they kept doing this all along because they thought we kept, I finally said, I don't care what color, if he's purple, can he deliver a baby? That's all I care about. I don't care if he's black. You know, they were a little surprised by that, you know. But that, that's the racism. But then I came back from, we came back from Mississippi and we had this, we were just starting this inner city ministry here in, in Northeast, Connecticut at the time. And what I experienced in the inner city was that black racism was just as bad. It's never talked about, but black racism was just as bad. And, and I saw the same racial hate that I saw from whites. I saw it from blacks. Same thing. In fact, it, it was just different colors now. It was the same racism. It was just black or brown now. Because the inner city had a lot of different... Races there. It was just different colors. But, and it was accepted there. And it was excused there. And it was given a free pass. But it was just as vicious. In fact, it was even scary because I gotta tell you, there was times we had to be careful. We were, didn't know if we were gonna walk out of some places because of our color. Strictly because of our color. And I'll tell you a funny story because I've been using the funny ones. Baby Ryan. We brought Baby Ryan back to this inner city ministry. And the kids were all excited. We had a baby. The kids from the inner city were excited. But, but they, they would let things slip when you know where they got it from. It was their parents. They said, oh, he's really cute for a white baby. 
<laughs> he was cute for a white baby. They all said it. He's cute for a white baby. And, and they had that attitude toward white people. They just had it, you know. Oh, you're okay at, you're okay for, at basketball for a white guy. You know, they would say this stuff to me, you know. And they, there's an attitude there. I've been all around the world. I've been around the block. I have found racism to be a worldwide problem. It's a worldwide problem. Every race has a serious race problem. Every race. And I can tell you story after story of every race. It's unbelievable, the racism. We just focus on one, but, but the key is this. Until we, we won't get healing until we admit that everyone has a racism problem. And we, as a church, have got to do something about it. We have to do something about it. There is only one way to heal the racial rift which haunts the United States today and the human race today. There is one way to heal it. One way. Galatians 3.28 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Only Jesus Christ can heal the race wound. Only the love of Jesus Christ can break through. We all know the song. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It tells you, it says it all, doesn't it? The little kids know it when they sing the song. The church of Jesus Christ must lead the way until the church is unified racially, until the, the forgiveness and the healing takes place, until the church is unified in Christ. I'm saying we have to all go to the same church. There are churches in Philly and here and other, but we have to be unified spiritually. Until that happens, the country has no chance. The red and yellow, black and white Christians must join hands and hearts. We have to lead the way to healing. We can't get caught up in what we've grown up in. We can't get caught up in the whole political battles and all that stuff. We're not Republican or Democrat. We're not black or white. That's not, we're, if, if we're white, that's not our identity, white. If you're black, your identity is not a black person or an Asian person. Or an Indian person, or you know, many races, whatever it is, that's not your identity. You're not Hispanic. That's not your identity. If you're a Christian, our identity is Christ. And it breaks my heart when people cling to these old identities. And that's not our identity. Our identity is as a Christian who happens to be white, a Christian who happens to be Asian, a Christian who happens to be black. That's not our identity. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way there's going to be healing. Is when we understand that and live that. There's only one way to heal the United States today. The love of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 has to become a reality. How is God speaking to us? How is he speaking to you? To reach out to that one person at a time. So many people have been hurt by racism. All different races have been hurt by racism. Believe me, we've all been hurt in some way, haven't we, by another race. But until we reach across and help bring healing and forgiveness, 
and show them that we're different because of Jesus Christ. We can reach out and touch someone with the love of Jesus Christ. How is God speaking to us? Start looking for the chances. How is God speaking to our church? What could we do as a church to bring this healing? Start praying about that, that how God could lead us. But before we can do that, we first must give our life to God. Have you done that? You can't get rid of the racism or any kind of bitterness until you give your life to Jesus Christ. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? There's only one way to God. There's only one way to do this. Just as we already talked about, there's one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. God's love made a way for us to come to God. John 3.16 says... For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. And as we go to this time of prayer, as always, we have a prayer team that is up front that will pray for you anytime during prayer, during worship, during at the end of the service, the rest of the afternoon, there's always people to pray with if there's something you need praying for. How is God speaking to us? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever acted on God's love? That he sent his son Jesus as the ultimate lamb to die on a cross in our place for our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever believed in Jesus? Not mental belief. This is talking about heart belief. Putting your total faith and trust in Jesus. Saying, I can't be good enough. There's nothing I can do. I can't follow the law. I can't do anything. I have to put my faith in Jesus. Give my life to him. Turn away from that sin and put my faith in Jesus. You can do that right now. It's a simple prayer of faith which you can pray right in your heart to God. God, I believe Jesus is the only way to you. I repent of my sin. I ask you to forgive everything I've done against your word, against your holiness, against you, God. I ask you to forgive me through your son, Jesus, who I'm putting my faith in now. I give my life to you, God. If you have prayed that prayer of faith, or if you do pray that prayer of faith, the moment you pray it, the second you pray it, you have crossed over the Jordan River, you have crossed over death and judgment into a full inheritance with Jesus, both here on this earth, a new life on this earth, and a life forever with him in heaven someday. 
I want to encourage you to let somebody know if you've made that decision, if you do make that decision. Let someone know here, maybe you came with a family member or a friend or fill out the card in the bulletin or email me, call me, tell me. Let somebody know so we can be excited for you and encourage you in your new life in Christ. How's God speaking to the rest of us as we go to this ending of worship? How's God speaking to us about a sin? The sin of pure, maybe even a sexual sin. Something we all struggle with, but something we have to take very seriously. Will we confess that sin? Will we ask God to really cleanse, fully cleanse us? Will we talk to whoever we have to? We get accountability and the encouragement that we need to get to stay pure so that it doesn't haunt us. Maybe God is convicting our heart of racism. Maybe we have racism toward others, something we all struggle with. Who is God laying on our heart right now to reach out and touch with the love of Jesus Christ? Maybe somebody very bitter because they've been hurt, and it's going to take the love of Christ to break through. Maybe God is putting on your heart a way for our church to make a difference, to connect with other churches of other colors, to help us truly become the body of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would complete what you're starting in our heart this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name.